0: It's never about context being in or out. The question is what the relevant context
1: is. How concepts and theories are created within specific contexts.
0: Ceturus non paribus, meaning all other things not being equal. Welcome to a new episode of Ceturus non paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast. Your host today is Reinhard Schumacher and my guest is Gareth Dale. Gareth is a social scientist. He teaches at Brunel University, London. The topic of our discussion is the intellectual biography of Karl Polanyi, written by Gareth, titled Karl Polanyi, A Life on the Left. It was already published in 2016, but it has just been released as a paperback. It is a very informative and entertaining read, and Gareth is well-placed to write such an intellectual biography, being one of the leading experts on Polanyi. He has published many papers on Polanyi, as well as, I think, four books by now, among them, Reconstructing Karl Polanyi, Excavations and Critique, published in 2016 as well, in Pluto Press. I suppose our listeners will have heard of Karl Polanyi. He is best known for his main um, work, The Great Transformation, in which he critically examines laissez-faire capitalism and the market economy. He was not merely an economist by today's standard, but rather a polymath and social sciences, covering everything from economics to anthropology, sociology, political science, and history. He was a reformist socialist, but he developed intellectually from a liberal socialist to a guild socialist to a representative of Christian socialism, as Garris discusses in his biography and as I hope we will discuss in more detail during our talk. In his biography, Garris understands the development of Karl Polanyi's thought against the background of the intellectual and political developments of the first six decades of the 20th century. And Polanyi's life is, as Garris writes, above all a 20th century life, one whose narratives dramatizes, parallels, intervenes in and sometimes seem to encapsulate the events and processes, the soil and rubble on which we stand today. And this is the topic I want to discuss today. So Garris, welcome to Cetrus non paribus.
1: Thanks very much, Reinhard.
0: Polanyi was born in 1886 into a Jewish-Hungarian family and grew up in Budapest. You term the environment in which he grew up as a quotation, East-West Salon. What do you mean by this and what was his upbringing like?
1: Uh, Well, what I mean by um, the East-West Salon, uh, that's a chapter heading. And I was trying to um, uh, hit upon um, chapter headings that, you know, vivid way, encapsulate the themes of the chapter. And um, the salon refers to his mother's uh, salon in Budapest uh, as a hive of intellectual activity. His mother was a um, uh, a very brilliant woman, uh, uh, an early feminist um, and a political radical. And um, she would host salons um, uh, regularly at their house in Budapest. Um The east-west reference is to the oh, the fact that this chap- these chapters on in the biography on Polani's early life, um, they one of the axes around which those chapters re- revolve is um, the way in which Polanyi was part of a very, really in some ways quite privileged, Jewish middle class um, environment uh, that tended to look for inspiration uh, in many respects to the West, to Western political and economic thought, for example, to the, the sort of modernity of England and Britain or Britain. Um, but at the same time, he was part of radical milieu of a Budapest counterculture. Um, that also looked to the to revolutionary movements in Russia. And um, so Polanyi's early life was that of a an Anglophile and a Russophile. Um, and that's one of the references uh, of um, the East-West Salon there. There's also another issue, which is I focus in these early chapters on um, Polanyi's Jewish heritage. Mm-hmm. And um, I organised some of the discussion around the the question of the Western Jew and the Eastern Jew, the assimilated Jew, and the and the ghetto Jew, um, and um, explore what that meant for the uh, for Polanyi's um, outlook, I suppose, uh, and for the history of rising anti-Semitism in the late nineteenth century that led to a kind of generation gap. Whereby Polanyi's parents and those of his of their generation, they tended to be insofar as they were liberals, they tended to assume that the development of the market economy of capitalism would, and the, and of the, um, parliamentary democracy would all tend towards a more and more liberated future, whereby um, Jews, the oppression of the Jews would would decrease. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would be uh, able to assimilate more and more smoothly into civic life uh, and political life too. Um, but rising anti-Semitism at the end of the nineteenth century um, put paid to those dreams. And and some of the the younger generation, Karl Polanyi's generation, um, took a more radical turn. I mean, it, this is very vividly uh, encapsulated in his. Um, uh, in the reason for his expulsion from the Bud- uh, University of Budapest, which was that he got into a fight with um, right-wing uh, anti-Semitic chauvinists. Um, and that led to his expulsion from university. It was one of the many processes in his early life that led to his political radicalization and his move towards socialism.
0: And then he went on, you, you already alluded to it, to study... I think both in Budapest and also in Vienna, but he became then aligned politically in in Budapest with what you call bourgeois radicalism or what is called bourgeois radicalism. Uh, what is that, and what role did he play in this movement?
1: Well, bourgeois radicalism. I'm referring here to the the to those around, um, for example, Polanyi's mentor, Oscar Yahtzee, Um what we nowadays today would call probably radical liberals. Um, in Hungary at the time, you have to remember the the liberal party was um, dragged its feet um, on the question of democracy, for example, um, on the question of equal rights for women mm-hmm. um, and many other similar. And, um, and on the left fringe of liberalism arose uh, more radical currents. Um, who called for rapid democratization, equal rights for women, greater rights to be accorded to the minority nationalities in the Hungarian, in greater Hungary, and so on. Um, Polanyi was plugged into that movement, and also to other countercultural milieu, close to, for example, George Lukács, who was moving towards Marxism in the 1910s. Yes, and, and, to, he, and to Hungarian social democracy.
0: And he then also became involved in the so-called Galileo circle when he was a student and he became a leader of this group as well. Um, this was part of this bourgeois radicalism or liberal, labdi- uh, liberal radicalism. It, so he exact, was exactly, politicized yep. very early on and he uh, that was the period of his most activism during his student stay, wasn't it? Like he would become more a theoretical person later, less a activist but in his student days he seems to have been rather active
1: yeah most I mean he was very active at that stage in his life and later on uh, generally not although there were some periods where he was a, uh, an activist in the in London in the mid 1930s for example uh, we'll come on we'll come on to that later um, but yes in um, in his student days he was he was uh, uh, an activist certainly um, and helped set up the Galileo circle, which was a circle, it wasn't overtly political, it was a circle of kind of moral, a group calling for a moral uh, regeneration, um, essentially, but of course, the, there were political implications in that project.
0: And then came the big uh, break, not only in his life, but also in Europe, namely World War I. And at the end of it, Polanyi would end up in Vienna, and his life would change dramatically. But let's start. Um, what what was his role, or what did he do in World War One?
1: Well, in the First World War, he was um, he uh, he signed up as an officer in a, an engineering brigade of sorts, um, and. Uh, it was a very <laughs> chastening, sobering experience for him. I mean, there were many motivations in his in his decision to go to war. Um, he could have sought to avoid war, as some did. Um, uh, he, but he actually voluntarily enlisted. In my view, a, um, a mistake in his life. Um, he had su- certain illusions in the war that um uh there were certain positive aspects to the to the cause um which i hope he was cured of as the war progressed um and there were other motivations of a more personal nature that were pushing him towards towards uh, enlisting um for example he was suffering some a degree of depression at the time and um, I suppose this might have seemed a way of just um, levering himself out of uh, a painful environment anyway he went to war and was I um, uh, didn't see much fighting but did see some he was I don't think he was involved in combat himself but um, he was close to the front at some time on some occasions um, and his letters from the front are some of the most moving uh Uh, letters that you can find in his correspondence, although there aren't many of them that remain. Um, uh, Then he was injured and contracted typhus and had to return to to Budapest at the end of 1917, I think it was.
0: And then he went to Vienna to continue his recovery, didn't he?
1: That's right, he convalesced in, in Budapest he was uh involved uh from a distance uh, perhaps in the revolutionary uh moments of late 1918 and early 1919 the so called white aster revolution of october 18 or the chrysanthemum revolution as it's sometimes known and then the the communist commune of early 19, 1919 uh towards which his relationship was more ambiguous and then it was off to further convalescence in in Vienna before the proto-fascists of um, Admiral Horty crushed the left in Hungary in in, in late nineteen
0: nineteen. So and in Vienna he would um, change his life kind of he first converted to potentist uh, potentist. Protestantism?
1: Protestantism or Lutheranism. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lutheranism. <Yeah. laughs> so uh, yeah, why did that happen? He
0: convert,
1: well, he converted to Christianity during the war. It's um, as far as I can tell. Um, uh, he had always tended to disavow his Jewish heritage. It had. He hadn't been a practicing Jew. Um, uh and then after towards the end of the first world war a great number of um Hungary's Jews converted to Christianity and he was part of this
0: movement so why was he drawn to Christianity or why did he do it well um, Uh, There's
1: not a great deal of concrete evidence on why exactly he was drawn to Christianity. I mean, we can say that he was, um, in the 1910s, pulled towards the Christian anarchism of uh, Leo Tolstoy, for example. Um, And he was very well aware of the the radical origins of Christianity, the critique of inequality, um, the... uh, the, the asceticism and and, and, and so on, um, and above all, the, what he identified with within Christianity is a commitment to to yeah equality and community. The fact that every individual human being in the Christian uh, uh, doctrine has a soul grants a certain constitutional equality to them.
0: If I understand it correctly, it's also in the in the um, um, New Testament, at least in the letters, um, then when the early Christian communities are described, it is, on the one hand, rather individualistic, like the individual plays a big role, and on the other hand, it is a community. And this is, he was not the only one at the time, but this, um, opposition of individual and community. This was something that he tried to figure out I think. Um, yeah, I in think the you're, you're, as well. Yeah. I think I think
1: yeah. you're right about that. I, I discussed that um, dialectic of Christ, the sort of Christian dialectic of individuality and community in the in the biography.
0: Yeah. But one last point on this is there, maybe you don't know that, but I recently figured out that his brother Michael, and I think we will talk about him later, he actually converted to Catholicism, the Catholic yeah. Church. Is there a right. reason why he chose Protestantism? Or we don't know? Um, he he, he I went to Pro- Vienna, it is a Catholic city or country, Austria, at the time.
1: Yes, although he had identified with Protestantism before he moved to Vienna, my hunch here—and it's only a hunch—really um, is that uh, Protestantism can be seen by radicals such as Polanyi as a, uh, a more structurally egalitarian religion, and that each is um, each believer uh is sort of enjoined to read and interpret the bible him or herself um and not to necessarily rely too heavily on the the, the, the interpretation of priests um, and polani was close to protestants who took that belief to its logical extreme such as quakers for example
0: okay and in his intellectual development he also moved away from this radical liberalism towards socialism. Early on, a uh, liberal socialism. Do you know why? How that happened, or what changed his mind? You?
1: Yeah, like so many in his of his generation, the radical and in Europe, especially the radicalizing experiences were the First World War and the succession of revolutions and. Um, Radical political movements that rippled around the continent after it's it's after the guns had fallen silent Um, So there were you know two revolutionary upsurges in in Hungary just in the uh, Just while he was convalescing and then he moved to Vienna and there was the Vienna had had uh, underwent had had undergone its its own revolutionary moment in 1918 to 19 just before he arrived. Um, and it had brought the, uh, brought social democracy to power in Vienna, um, uh, which was the, you know, which led to the red Vienna experiment of which Polanyi was a huge fan.
0: During this time, he also seemed to have uh, moved towards economics a bit more. He was what I think many don't know. He was, um, involved in the socialist calculation debate in the early 1920s in vienna um, which is normally portrayed today as being on the one hand the socialists otto neurath and i don't know others Oskar lange Aber Lerner, and on the other hand the austrian economists the liberal economists uh, ludwig mises and also Friedrich hayek who discussed about um, in the end it was about is, is socialism possible although the discussion itself was much more narrow on the how can you assure in socialism that resources are allocated and the means of production are allocated according to the need or the wants of the people and Mises famously denied that this was even possible while socialists would argue that it would, is this is possible through central planning um, Polanyi himself favored or championed a third position of guild socialism. Can you say something on this and how he tried to uh, solve the debate or influence the debate?
1: Yeah, sure. So the debate really was kicked off by by Neurath's book and then Mises responded from the right in and, the, and his response was published in the Archiv für Sozialwissenschaft und Sozialpolitik, which was edited by um, Emil Lederer who was Polanyi's a relative of Polanyi. I forget what the connection exactly was, but certainly a relative. And um, uh, with under Lederer's editorship, um, several responses from a guild socialist position were were published. Um, a couple of them by Polanyi himself, and he was, um, you know, he disagreed with Neurath. Um, Neuvat's argument for a, essentially a moneyless, marketless command economy. Um, but he disagreed with, with von Mises as well. Um, because von Mises was arguing the inherent impossibility of socialism and Polanyi was, uh, in that moment, um, becoming quite a radical socialist, quite close to, uh, Austro-Marxism. Um, or as you say, um, very influenced by the guild socialist tradition which was born in britain but was more influential in central europe than it was ever in britain particularly through its strong influence on austro-marxism and so polani's essays in the archive um were uh, essentially charting a a middle a middle course um arguing for some sort of guild socialist uh society um uh and attempting to answer the challenge that Mises had laid down which was you know how can you how can um, the necessary calculations by which resources are distributed be um affected uh in a society that isn't governed by the market system and Polanyi's answer is essentially uh, laid out along guild socialist lines that um Different institutions within society can represent um, producers and consumers uh, in a process of negotiation. The the broad um, decisions over resources can be laid out, and then there's room uh, for for commodity markets um, for some sort of uh, uh, commodity exchange with price mechanism to to um, occur. On the edges of that system. So, a kind of um, hybrid system uh, was what he was arguing for.
0: Yes, and this guild socialism also includes a rather um, well, radical democratization of the whole production process. So Correct. That, um, I, I suppose many listeners will not be familiar with the term guild socialism, so that um, decisions. About productions will be taken democratically by the workers, by the producers, and so on. Exactly.
1: It's It's an argument for
0: economic democracy. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a role for markets as well, because Polanyi was never, I suppose, a centralist planner, this kind of socialism representative, but he always, there was always a role for the market. He was more market socialist. The, well, the market well, has limits, and it's not, not every area of uh, social life should be regulated by the markets. But, like for economics, uh, economic goods, or for, for hmm. commodities, um, real commodities, um, the market does play a role, isn't it?
1: Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, one of the reasons I ended up writing um, these books on Polanyi is because he's, if you look at his life, as, as his, his work as a whole and his life as a whole. Um, uh, it was a, a long life, uh, a, a long intellectual and political journey he made, and um, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't stuck in one position the um, whole of his life. He didn't move around, and um, uh, including on the question of central planning. Uh, so... You know, in my view, his most radical period politically was his guild socialist period, in the uh, where he was close to Austro Marxism in the early to mid, well, sorry, in the mid to late 1920s. Um, but thereafter, he became more of a rather more orthodox Fabian social democrat. So he had been a radical left social democrat, but he moved to a more orthodox Fabian position in the 1930s. Um, and uh, under the influence of the of Stalin's Russia, he became uh, an advocate of central planning.
0: Okay. Yeah. We we come to this uh, period. I was yeah. I was referring to the period in Vienna. He was rather sure. Sure.
1: Sure. Uh, well. Uh, well. You're yeah. You, you summarize yeah. that period very well. Yeah.
0: Um, so and also while in um, Vienna, he started working for. Uh, the österreichische Volkswirt, the Austrian Economist, uh, which you describe as basically the Austrian version of the Economist newspaper, a bit, a little more friendly towards social democracy. And this was also his main um, way to earn money, wasn't it? He had he, he had no university position in Vienna at the time, um, so he needed to earn his money somehow. Yeah,
1: that's right.
0: Um, and this was when he was working for the for the economic. Um, Magazine. So, um, but the other big thing in um, Vienna was he met his uh, future wife and mother of his only child, Ilyona Duchinska. Can you say something about her and the relationship?
1: She she was a a brilliant um, communist uh, activist and when, and, and, and intellectual as well. Um, and he, she, she basically rescued Polanyi from his miserable years of depression in, in the, uh, the early 1920s. Uh, they fell in love and had a child. Um, and they had a quite beautiful relationship as far as I can, as far as one can tell from the correspondence. Um, able to live long years apart um, even in the 1930s with Ilona going underground uh, to organize anti-fascist resistance in Austria while Polanyi went into exile in London with the child. Um, They were able to live long years apart and yet remain very close. And um, uh, They were politically at odds. Ilona was a Bolshevik um, in the Nineteen twenties. Polanyi was a left social democrat, um, so not too far apart. Still, some <laughs> significant differences. Um, over the course of their life, they converged around a sort of um, left communist. Uh, yeah, it's kind of it's sort of left communism, one might say.
0: Yeah, and and she always remained the activist, while he remained the thinker. Maybe, if you can.
1: Well, I Say wouldn't like want. That, no? Yeah, I, in I wouldn't want to put it like that because she was, I think, a pretty profound thinker as well. She's written. She wrote a, a brilliant book, for example, um, called Der Demokrat- Der Demokratische Democratic," or "Workers in Arms" uh, in the English title, on the Austrian uprising of nineteen thirty-four.
0: Okay, so let's re- re- let me rephrase that. She she was always an activist, while Polanyi became. Except for his time in Hungary. But when he, when
1: yeah, he met okay. her,
0: he was not an activist at all anymore. He was like this thinker, theoretical uh, yeah, scholar. I wouldn't,
1: I wouldn't want to play down his activism too much. Okay. I mean, certainly compared to her, he wasn't uh, such an activist yet, but most of us wouldn't be compared to her. Um, uh, he, he was more, he tried to be more of a kind of teacher in. A radical milieu. So, for example, he taught at the uh, the Social Democrat High Folks. What was it called again? The Volkshochschule in um, in Vienna. Um, and he, so he always wanted to be in a radical milieu and contributing to it. But he wasn't a sort of go out and demonstrate kind of guy.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is uh, true. He was he was doing the education. But I when I thought when I refer to activism, I meant more like that. I don't know. Going, demonstrate, do some political yeah. work, but she was she was the one with the gun. But unfortunately, Vienna yeah, became darker at some point, and that also meant that the Polani's had to leave Austria. So what happened, or where did they go?
1: Um, well, polani was always an Anglophile and had. Um, good political connections uh, and Quaker connections in Britain, um, and so he considered coming to Birmingham, but ended up in London.
0: And what did he do there?
1: He scrabbled around. This was the this was the Great Depression. He scrabbled around trying to find work. Eventually, found some through well placed friends. Um, he managed to find some uh, adjunct teaching work. Uh, with the Workers Educational Association.
0: But his time in the UK wasn't the happiest of his life, as you would describe it. He didn't get a permanent position there, and he then went on to, I think, if I remember correctly, lecture tours in the United States. Well, that's,
1: uh, I mean, yeah, his time in Britain wasn't the happiest in his life. Remember, uh, in certain respects, I, I, you know, he his career. Well, I don't know. I mean, okay, he didn't make much money, but he he loved. Teaching in an outfit like the Workers' Educational Association. If only there were more such uh, organizations today. Um, so there were elements of even of his career that went very well. And remember, this is of course, it was through that teaching that he really um, uh, dived into economic history in a big way. And it's that that forms the basis of his major book, The Great Transformation, it's in Britain as well that he returned to activism with a Christian socialist group and and essentially anti-fascist activism. Um, He was arguing for a fusion of communism and Christianity uh, or socialism and Christianity um, as being, and that, you know, as bound into the anti-fascist movement and but then there was you know horrific things taking place during his life in britain as well namely uh the run-up to the second world war and the persecution of his fellow socialists and jews whom he had including family members whom he had left behind in central europe
0: yeah that is uh true if i remember correctly he did lose some family members in the Holocaust, wasn't it? He did, yes.
1: Inc- including including
0: a sister. Um, but so what, why did he go to the US then?
1: Uh, to, to to get away from the war and be able to conduct research on which he then did and wrote The Great Transformation.
0: Yes, he ended up at uh, Bennington College in Vermont, which was a very small college. Mm-hmm. But he found his piece there, and he had time to write The um, Great Transformation. But he was also separated from his uh, wife and child during this time, wasn't it? Yeah, that's It right. must have been very hard personally for him. And um, so The Great Transformation was his major work. It was finally published. However, um, it didn't lead to the breakthrough he had hoped for, I suppose. And I think you describe it well that there was rather a lack of reception at all. Um, Maybe you can talk about this a bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to talk about the book in detail because it would take us all day, Um, and because it's so. I've, you know, anyone who's interested in this topic will find plenty to read about it. Um, You know, I've written in these books that you mentioned about the Great Transformation, of course, as well, and. But it does argue that a great transformation is taking place towards, from away from, in the middle of the 20th century, a great transformation is taking place away from market society and towards um, uh, more etatist uh, societies. And um, Polanyi's hope was that this drift away from the market society would lead towards a sort of democratic socialism, as he would have put it um but instead the market system was restabilized after the second world war american hegemony played a part in that and um uh so instead of a shift away from the market system yeah the market system re- reconsolidated um pushed back and eventually um pushed back even harder in the form of neoliberalism, a return to the sort of market fundamentalism that Volani had been critiquing in uh, in The Great Transformation.
0: Yeah, but when The Great Transformation was published in uh, 1944, um, why why do you think there was kind of a lack of reception? Nobody seemed to be much interested in it, or am I wrong?
1: It didn't um, create such a splash or as it probably deserved, or as it has received more recently, so I think you're right about that. Um, the The lines of division in political economy were largely between um, between defenders of the traditional order and and what gradually became known as neoliberals, um, on the one hand, and Keynesians on the other. And Polanyi fitted into neither of those camps. That's part of the reason. Um, yeah,
0: but for example, another one who might, if it's in there, but who got, who was dealing basically with the same problem was, was Hayek, Friedrich Hayek, who wrote also in 19 or published in 1944 the road to serfdom, which was an instant success. So there might've been an interest in the questions Polanyi was grappling with in the great transformation. Hayek is also talking about that laissez-faire doesn't work. And the great fear also of Polanyi was not that capitalism would win, but rather that it would turn into fascism. The same fear was expressed by Hayek, for example. So the time seemed ripe for such a book, but then it was not.
1: um, Mm, Although you're you're talking as if Polanyi and Hayek were...
0: No, they were, sorry. They were writing um, on
1: similar lines. And and there there are some intriguing similarities. Similar
0: topics, though, I would say. I mean, the arguments are different, but they have similarities of the problems they see. Yeah, there,
1: there are some. They both come from a tradition of sort of defining capitalism very strictly as liberal capitalism and seeing any form of state intervention as a deviation from that liberal capitalist norm, which is I, I, I I'd speculate that might be one of the reasons why Hollani's um, book didn't didn't hit the button when it was published um, because you know this was an age in which capitalism was re- was becoming much more statist but it was rem- remaining capitalism it wasn't becoming really socialism in any meaningful sense uh, at least not as I would interpret uh, things Um Whereas Polanyi assumed that the move towards a more status model uh, was really, in essence, the move towards socialism. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, there are there, there are some similarities between Hayek and Polanyi also on the question of how they mobilize concepts of spontaneity. Both of them, for both of them, spontaneity figures. At one point in the argument, quite centrally, for Hayek, of course, it's the question of spontane- the market system as a spontaneous order. Um, and for Polanyi, it's the inverse of that. Polanyi is, is, is in a sense, the mirror of Hayek. They, uh, in Polanyi's case, the, what is spontaneous is society's reaction to the depredations of the market. So there are some similarities. between I don't claim to be, really be able to explain why Hayek's book was popular, uh, unlike Polanyi's um others can probably tell you more more give give you some more interesting theories on that
0: okay so back to Pulani's life this was a temporary position in bennington college but in the end he was able to well it was a it wasn't easy but in the end he was able to um get a position at columbia in new york yeah um even though as you write in your biography, he didn't really fit into the subject of, um, of the social sciences that were given, as you say, I think it was in relation to the University of Chicago that the sociologist there saw him as an economist, while the economist there saw him as a sociologist, this didn't make it easier for him. Um, he ended up in Columbia, it could have been a happy ending, but then he wasn't able to get his family over or his wife over to the US. What happened there and... How did they sort of the situation? Yeah,
1: well, the two departments you were talking about were in Colombia. As to your question, um, yeah, it was um, uh, American, well, essentially, I mean, in the the broad sense of the term, McCarthyism that prevented Ilona uh, uh, from being able to join him in the United States. Um it was actually the I think the law that prevented her coming over had already been in place um under an earlier democrat uh, administration um I forget exactly that can be checked in in the biography um at any rate she wasn't allowed in and so she eventually moved to Toronto and he was able to broadly speaking commute between Toronto and New York.
0: And intellectually, he moved away from from um, the Great Transformation, and I think uh, he was actually obliged to write a follow-up um, with the press or something. You write about that? That's right. And, he- but he didn't do that. Instead, he um, maybe was a bit of uh, disappointed that the Great Transformation was not taking place, that the New Deal that he put his hope in didn't turn out the way he had hoped it would turn out. So he dived into economic history and the history of uh, the economic life of early societies. you want to Correct. say something about that?
1: Yeah, and well, I just, no, I, I'll, I'll, I'll just agree <laughs> agree with you on that. I mean, I write at great length on that in the polity book I, I how uh, Polanyi limits to the market and in both of the books that you mentioned as well. Um, but I th- think it's more a specialist audience who'll be interested in, in those areas. So um, I'd just refer them to the literature on that.
0: The remaining research he did in his life was on um, economic history and economic anthropology. Exactly. But um, he wasn't that productive. Well, I think he published one article in a book in a Edited volume and otherwise, the rest of or two further books were published only posthumously, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, they were published posthumously, but um, but he, he was still productive because he was he was writing them.
0: That's true. Well, he didn't finish them though. And um, late in life, uh, as you write, he rekindled his love for Hungary.
1: Yes, uh, around the Hungarian Revolution of nineteen fifty six.
0: As you also have alluded before, he had um, kind of a, you would say, probably forgiving attitude toward the Soviet Union, but the Hungarian Revolution was um, directed against the Soviet Union. So how did he, did he change his mind on the Soviet Union, or how did he resolve this? He did. I,
1: he did. I mean, his, the period of his greatest um, affections for the, for the Soviet Union were, was the 1930s. Um, uh, after that he becomes more, his ardour cools somewhat and his, yes his affection for the Soviet Union became icy in 1956 around the Soviet intervention in Hungary uh, because Polanyi supported the the rebels Um, he saw it as a kind of uprising to rescue communism from itself um, it, uh, but then after he continued uh, even after that to see the Soviet Union as the, as the uh, I don't know the, for all its warts um, the most progressive social experiment in, in the world
0: even though they crushed the Hungarian Revolution
1: even, indeed even though they crushed the Hungarian Revolution
0: so another um, interesting figure in his life is his brother Michael Polanyi, who himself is, plays a role in the history of economics, at least in those interested in 20th-century liberalism, because he was the well, he was on the one hand a polymath, contributing to, to physics, to chemistry, but also to economics and philosophy. But he was a very liberal thinker. He is known mostly for his uh, research in the tacit structure of knowledge. I think he coined the phrase spontaneous order. I think I heard that somewhere. Um, So he was an anti-communist. He was um, also participating in CIA-funded research on the CIA-funded Congress for Cultural Freedom, and so the total opposite of his brother, Carl. How was the relationship? Um, over all these years. So was it a good relationship?
1: Yeah, it's um, it was an extraordinary relationship because they were... Carl, uh, 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 with the loss of their father, I think it was in 1905, uh, after his loss, Carl um, really took guardianship in a sense over Michael for a while, who was a good few years his junior. Um, and always had a kind of an elder brother attitude to, to, to Michael. Um, but they loved one another very dearly indeed and all their life long. And so when they started falling out politically in the nineteen late 1920s, 1930s, uh, a divergence that lasted really the rest of their lives, um, that was very painful and difficult to deal with. And they disagreed but vehemently uh, on a number of crucial issues. Uh, so Michael was uh, a sort of right-wing liberal in many respects. I mean, he was a very complex thinker. Um, he was a Keynesian in in respect of economic theory. Um, but in most respects, a right-wing liberal close to Hayek. Um, he understood the Soviet Union to be state capitalist, Whereas Karl saw it as socialist, wrongly in my view. Uh, Michael, Michael was a, a, a very lifelong critic of uh, the Soviet Union, whereas Karl's views were much more complex, as we've been discussing, um, and so on. So they disagreed very, very sharply, um, including on over Michael's. Involvement in CIA-sponsored uh, activities, the Congress for Cultural Freedom, for example.
0: But as you write as well, it was very much Michael who pressured Carl to finish his uh, Great Transformation in buses. Yeah, his. yeah,
1: it's it's a it, it was a it was a beautiful relationship because despite the sharp disagreements, they were very very encouraging of one another's work, even where it flatly. Uh, disagreed with the own.
0: You don't allude to that much in your biography. The, after his death, there was a few decades or two decades where he was barely accepted and then starting in the 80s, first in sociology and then later in political science and nowadays also in economics. The appeal of Polanyi increased and his popularity increased more and more. And you, you say it. one reason for this is that he represents a lost world. And I will just read a... a a quotation, it is Polanyi's diagnosis of the corrupting consequences of the marketization of labor power and nature that gives his work a contemporary feel and explains its continued appeal. Yet the prescription he offers appear antiquated, even foreign, to 21st century ears. Um, the epilogue of your book is called The Lost World of Socialism, and you refer to this reformist socialist experience. So why is that um, appealing nowadays, this lost world of socialism?
1: Well, okay, so there's a lot in that question. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, I mean, the the real reason why uh, Polanyi has become more popular since the 1980s is because of what really began to happen to, to political economic regimes in the 1980s. They moved generally, not everywhere in the world, but generally speaking, they moved in what became known as a neoliberal direction. Um, and so they, in some respects, they shifted the political economic order back to what it had been before, the great uh, shift to corporatism and etatism in the mid-20th century. The extreme example was the Soviet Union, but everywhere were war economies, state capitalist economies of all, all different shades and sizes Um, and so neoliberalism involved a a much more adamant commitment to market rules and to driving competitive market rules into state structures and so on Um, that was the world that um, Polanyi had criticized had attacked in the great transformation in its incarnation in 19th century Britain above all and um, it's a powerful piece of work, The Great Transformation, a powerful critique of the market system. Um, it has a kind of Christian inflected emphasis on the suffering uh, caused by markets, as opposed to what one finds in more commonly in the Marxist tradition, which is an a a, a conjoint emphasis on the exploitation and, and oppression that goes together with market society, but also on the power of working people to um, fight back um, working people and their allies uh, among the oppressed, the poor, the peasants, and so on. Um, and I so I think we can look at um late 20th century history of, political movements on the left and see that Marxism was more, uh, popular in the 60s and 70s, for example, when movements were very strong. But in the neoliberal period, movements have tended to be weaker. Um, and perhaps that is why Polanyi's work became more popular because it's, it's emphasis is on the oppression and suffering caused by the market, by the market system. He is a social democrat thinker, as we've discussed. Perhaps the most intelligent social democratic thinkers. As some some people have called him that. Um, I would agree with that. Um, but his social democracy was a generally speaking of quite a left wing sort, and and one that wasn't too tied into any particular party project. I mean, he was close to uh, Austrian social democracy, for example. He was a member for a while, but um, you know, he was he was a figure who roamed around various positions on the left, anarchism, Stalinism uh left social democracy fabianism and so on and so there's something more you know he can more something amorphous about him he can appeal to those who have a kind of gut critique of market society um uh but to a sort of wide range of different political color colorations let's say and there are very different interpretations of Polanyi's work. Some see him as a very radical socialist, the hard Carl Polanyi, as he's sometimes known. So others see him as a kind of uh, just as a mainstream social democrat.
0: Just to add something, social democracy was very different during his lifetime than from what we know today as social democracy, or in, in Britain the Labour Party.
1: Well, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. No? you see, no, I don't know if that's true. I I think um, if there's one figure in contemporary oh, social democracy who was <laughs> you know what i'm going to say who resembles um uh figures who were close to Polanyi in his day the interwar period it's jeremy corbyn but there are also a lot of significant social democratic intellectuals like Wolfgang Striek, uh, who are polanians in in many respects and let's not forget as well that what should be considered broadly as left social democratic movements such as Syriza in Greece and Podemos in Spain. I mean, they don't fit so neatly into the social democratic tradition, but they certainly, um, if one considers social social democracy broadly as a commitment to sort of, um, uh, a commitment on the part of uh, projects linked to trade unions and social movements who seek to gain governmental authority through the parliamentary process um, in order then to exert power in the interests of their constituencies, working people and the poor, then Podemos and Syriza fit that. But they're also bringing out some of the contradictions of social democracy, um, particularly Syriza, which has become a strange form of neoliberal left Social democracy.
0: Oh, yeah, I fully agree with that. I, I didn't want to say that this uh, social democracy isn't there anymore, but I just wanted to say that what is labeled today social democracy might be something different because most social democratic parties that have this name are not in favor of a democratic socialism anymore, for example. That was the only thing yeah, I wanted right. to, to Pol- relate to. That's right.
1: That's right. Polanyi belonged to a generation of social democrats who believed with Edward Bernstein um, that there was a kind of trans-historical movement towards democracy, that increasing industrialization would increase the size of the working class, um, that if parliamentary democratic uh, structures are in place, the workers will identify their interests as being best served by social democratic parties, will bring those parties to power, and those parties will inevitably, because they're committed to it, br- Bring about a socialist transformation. Now that didn't happen, and we have to ask one of the great questions about 20th century politics is, is why that didn't happen. For example, in, um, the country of Polanyi's birth, Austria, um, you know, the Social Democratic Party there, uh, gained over 50% of the vote, and yet still was determined to maintain a capitalist corporatist order and not to shift society in any way towards uh, what anyone would reasonably describe, I think, as as socialism. And that sort of question um, uh, was never confronted by Polanyi.
0: To end this interview, I would want to discuss a bit about the difficulties on writing a biography. And I mean, you did an excellent job in that and you consulted five archives, I think, in four countries. And um, so in how many languages was Polanyi fluent? And, or maybe more important, in how many languages did he leave written notes behind? Do you know that? <laughs> right.
1: I, I, I'm not even sure how many languages he was fluent in. Certainly English, German, Hungarian. Um, I, I think his first language was German, his mother tongue. Then probably English came next, maybe even French. And then Hungarian, I think. Um Although, of course, Hungarian was the ambient language in parts of in most of Budapest. Um, uh, He may have been fluent in ancient Greek and Latin. I'm not sure. Um, uh, What other languages? I've said flat French. Yes, he and Ilona um, wrote love letters to one another in four different languages. Uh, It's quite extraordinary. I I'm only fluent in German, um, so. And he hardly wrote in French at all, um, so i but I was able to get some funding to have the Hungarian uh documents translated into English, which I brought out then as a book so um so yeah, that's how I managed to get around the language problem
0: and then there was also um, Polani's um, daughter was still alive, I think at least uh, some nephews and nieces or at least one nephew. I don't know the, the others. But their relatives, um, very close relatives to Karl Polanyi still alive, um, were they supportive with this biography? Were they helpful?
1: Incredibly supportive, incredibly supportive. I mean, uh, I, I didn't set out to write a biography at all. I just set out to write one book on Polanyi for reasons that we've discussed earlier in this interview. Um, but then, realizing that the archive, which is a fantastic archive in Montreal, in, Montréal, in, in uh, Quebec, realizing that that archive had been, you know, it had been used by Polanian theorists and thinkers over the years, but it hadn't really been, uh, nobody had really gone through it in great detail, and no biography had been written, at least apart from brief essays. And so there was something exhilarating about, um, realizing that this hadn't been done and that there was so much fascinating material here. It was really, it was just like walking out onto fresh snow, um, after an overnight snowfall and just seeing that these, um, uh, fascinating documents, unpublished texts, um, texts in Hungarian that had not been translated, um, and so on. So it was the exhilaration of, discovering the archive that really um, led me to write the biography, and the recognition that no full-length biography had ever, had ever been written of this uh, very important thinker.
0: One, one very last question. Um, I was one of the first who got your book because I was writing a, a review for a journal. And um, the cover picture is not showing Polanyi, <laughs> the, the sketch, <laughs> the drawing. I mean, I, um, when I looked at it first, I thought, well, this is, it's a drawing, probably a drawing based on a picture. Um, I thought, well, this is, um, looks a bit different. I haven't seen Polani in this. I wasn't questioning that this I, that this wasn't Polani because it's a biography of him, but it turned out it wasn't Polani. so uh, what happened there?
1: <laughs> uh, I don't know if you know this story by half. Um, but um, yes, it's a funny story. They um, uh, the publisher sent me the cover design and I wrote back to them, said this doesn't look like Polani. Um, are you sure? And they contacted the artist, um, the designer, and got back to me and said, yes, it's not only is it Polanyi, but it's been used on covers of various uh, other books by, about Polanyi and has been used in magazines covering Polanyi. It must, must therefore be Polanyi. And, uh, you know, I, I, having received that assurance, I gave it credit. And also, I'm, you know, I'm aware that photos can, can lie. So, for example, in the same book, if you look at um, the inner sleeve at the back, you'll see a photo of me. It doesn't look anything <laughs> like me. Um, so ha- being aware that the photo of myself on the cover looked nothing like me, I thought, well, maybe the photo of Polanyi was just an unusual one that I, w- I hadn't come across. But in fact, it turns out it was uh, Malinovsky. And, and you can see why um, the mistake uh, came came about. If you Google uh, Karl Polanyi and images then about 20 Karl Polanyi come up and one Malinowski. Now you'd have thought that the designer would have recognized that that looks the odd one out um, and shied away from it or double-checked um, but they didn't. Um, anyway, the covers were recalled and reissued with uh, a picture of the actual <laughs> Karl Polanyi
0: on, on it. So um, thank you very much for being a guest on Ceteris Non Paribus, it was great talking to you.
1: Thanks very much for inviting me, Reinhardt.
0: For further information about this episode, including links to the books by Gareth, visit our homepage at www.ceterisnonparibus.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Feel free to leave us a comment.